It's wonderful to see you this morning. Good to be together on this first Sunday in Advent. And go ahead and open your Bible, if you have it, to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. We'll get there in just a few minutes. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew right there in front of you or somewhere around you. I think you'll find one. It says Holy Bible on the front. That'll be the giveaway. Uh, You'll recognize it. When you see it, you'll find this passage on page 491 or 517 uh, in the Pew Bible. But uh, again, as indicated earlier, today is the first Sunday in Advent. We celebrate Advent in church tradition, uh, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And of course, we light a candle each week, and there's a theme associated with that. The first candle being the prophecy candle, and the theme is hope. And Advent is a season in which we anticipate the coming of the Messiah. So at Christmas, we celebrate his arrival. In Advent, we, we anticipate his coming. So it's a season of waiting. And, and all of us, um, from time to time, had the experience of waiting, right? Uh, I, would, I would guess that none of us likes it, and most of us are not very good at it, right, waiting, because we don't really get as much practice as we used to in this 21st century technological age. Just ordinary life doesn't require us to wait quite as much as we used to. I was reminded of this this past week as uh, at our home we were unpacking our Christmas decorations and that sort of thing, and I unboxed a book that we had received back in the mid-90s. It's called The 25 Days of Christmas. And uh, it's a daily Advent book for families just to observe and celebrate different uh, devotions and songs and activities and tips and that kind of thing for each day beginning December 1st that they can do for 25 days leading up to Christmas. And I got this unexpected chuckle out of one entry on December 2nd. It said, be sure if you're ordering any items by mail order, that you have your orders in today if you want the items to arrive before Christmas. And I I laughed, first of all, at the memory there was such a thing as mail order. And and, and that you might wait three weeks for an item to arrive. If If you order an item online now and it takes three weeks to get there, it's two and a half weeks late, right? Because you could, you could take out your phone and order just about anything you want and have it on your doorstep Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. And uh, that's the culture we live in. We, don't, we really don't have to wait for much. We don't get a lot of practice waiting. There are still plenty of instances in which we have no choice to wait. You know, there are circumstances in life that are not the way we wish they would be. And maybe we're even praying God will make them different. But until he does, we just have to wait. And we have to hope hoping that something good comes out of it. And that's the topic of this morning's sermon. Uh, The people of God in the book of Isaiah were facing the, the most desperate of circumstances. And God speaks through Isaiah to tell them that the good that will come out of their situation is the Messiah. The one whose coming we anticipate in Advent the one whose arrival we celebrate at Christmas, he's the object of our hope. 
So let's look at the text together from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you as always for the privilege of coming together as your people and for hearing from you in your word. We do believe it is your word, that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut to the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we ask you to get there in us today by the power of your word. Lord, speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. And Lord, would you move me out of the way? Use me as you wish to say what we need to hear today. You know all the hearts represented here today and all the needs in those hearts. And I don't. Lord, would you say what we need to hear by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, I wanna lay some groundwork here today by way of background, not only for this passage and this message, but to some extent for the Advent season. There, as our reading uh, this morning, the Lighting the Candles, was also a passage out of Isaiah um, those are popular ones during the Advent season because of the prophecies about Messiah. So I want to lay some groundwork by kind of explaining the historical context of this passage as well as the context of Isaiah more generally. As I already suggested, when Isaiah prophesied of the coming Messiah, it was a desperate situation for the people of God. And we really don't appreciate the message of hope to them fully if we don't understand how desperate the circumstances were. 
Isaiah's ministry took uh, place during a period of time when both Israel and Judah were being threatened by Assyria. Now, for those who, who maybe don't know, uh, there was a, a point in Israel's history where Israel was divided into two kingdoms and, and thereafter they were known as Israel and Judah. So Israel is a northern kingdom and their worship center became uh, sort of settled up in Samaria. That was kind of their capital and the southern kingdom was, was called Judah. And so as you read through his, the, some of the historical books and through uh, some of the prophets, you see reference to Israel and Judah. And that can be kind of confusing if you don't know what's going on there or what they're talking about there. They each had their different kings and that sort of thing. But in, at, at this point in history, both Israel and Judah are threatened by Assyria. And uh, that's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 16 through 19. Um, it's also some of that's recorded in the book of Isaiah. But because of the idolatry of Israel, the northern kingdom, God gave them over to Assyria. It says that they feared other gods and worshiped them. They despised God's commandments and statutes. They followed the ways of the nations around them instead of the ways that God outlined for them. And it says that the Lord told them not to. He says he warned them by every prophet and seer, but they would not listen. And so he turned them over to Assyria. Assyria, which was a brutal empire, a brutal empire who would conquer people, put hooks through their noses, chain them together and drag them back to Assyria like cattle. Brutal people. He turns them over. Assyria takes them into exile these, the, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, takes them into exile, resettles Assyria, or, uh, Samaria with people from other nations. And the northern kingdom literally ceased to exist. It was never known uh, in the same way again. Utterly wiped out. In fact, you might say it, it, it was the fulfillment of what we considered last week from Deuteronomy, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. And that's exactly what they did. They did all the things he told them to take care they did not do. And ultimately, this was the judgment they experienced. Well, about five years later, a new king of Assyria, Sennacherib, uh, makes his move on Judah, which again is south of Israel or, the, or Samaria. Bear in mind, this would be people who have watched all of this happen around them, so to speak. It's not like they had CNN or Fox News or anything. It could, could see video footage of it. But they know exactly what's going around. This empire, which, which is actually centered over somewhere around northern Iraq today, has made their way up and around the Middle East, and they're just conquering one territory after another. Israel's now gone, and Judah is next. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, tried to appease them a bit, but to no avail. They weren't hearing anything of it. And Sennacherib sends messengers to Hezekiah in Jerusalem, and they cry out so that all the people on the walls can hear it. Some of the leaders of, of, of Jerusalem actually try to say, hey, we just say it in Aramaic. We understand that. Most of the people sitting up here don't. <laughs> 
And they go, no, we, we want the people to hear this. They cry out this word of judgment. And basically they say, uh, don't trust Hezekiah. And by the way, don't trust Yahweh either. He didn't save Israel or Samaria. He didn't, no, no other nation's God sir, uh, saved them. What makes you think your God can save you from us? Surrender now. You'll have a, uh, you know, a belly full of good, <laughs> good food before sundown. It doesn't say that exactly, but that's basically the message. And if you don't, it'll be the worst kind of pain and suffering that you could imagine. When Hezekiah heard that, he melted with fear. Want to talk about being overcome with fear? Can you imagine? Can you imagine that moment? 2 Kings 19.1 says, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went to the house of the Lord. And he sent two of his men to Isaiah to ask Isaiah to intercede for them. And he, and he says to tell uh, Isaiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. In other words, women, pregnant women in labor, the time comes to push and they say, I can't. They are so weakened by distress. Do you know, do you know enough of distress to relate even on the smallest scale of what this feels like, to, to just be overcome by it. I mean, where, where it, it rushes in and hope rushes out. It's like somebody opened up a floodgate at the bottom of your being and the hope just left you and, and just suddenly replaced by despair. And it's sickening and your knees grow weak and you can hardly hold yourself up. Anybody been there? Well, this, is, this is all of Jerusalem at this moment. And this is King Hezekiah, who's about to make a decision on behalf of all those people. What do I do in the face of that kind of threat? And Isaiah says to Hezekiah's men, tell him this. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. It came to pass exactly as prophesied, Sennacherib returned to Assyria without conquering Jerusalem. Some years later, he was killed by his own son. That actually, according to even Assyria's records, historical records, just as prophesied. Jerusalem was spared. All of Judah around them destroyed. Israel is gone from history. And, and actually, those events that I just described are, are prophesied later in Isaiah. It's actually not 
even right before um, this passage in Isaiah 11. But, but they're helpful as a part of the background this morning for a couple of reasons. Number one, Judah's circumstances could hardly be worse. Would you agree? I mean, it could hardly be more desperate and despairing than that. There was plenty of cause to lose hope. And second, God spoke hope into the situation and then brought to pass what he had spoken. You tracking there? So, so in other words, they, in a, a reasonable period of time, he said they would not be conquered by Sennacherib and that came to pass. They were spared. They were saved. God spoke and then he brought it to pass. So they knew they could trust him. They, they were assured his word was trustworthy. So when Isaiah delivers the words recorded in, in chapter 11, he gives them reason to hope something good will come out of this. And that something is a someone, the promised Messiah. He depicts him here as a branch that would bring forth new life. And so let's look quickly um, from Isaiah chapter 11, verses one through 10 there at the root of the branch, the rule of the branch, and the fruit of the branch. And first, the root of the branch, if you look at verse one, it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Assyria went through here and they, and they just mowed down the countryside. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, a general that goes through, destroys everything, burns the cities and this sort of thing. They have, they've literally just cut forests down, taken everything of value away with them and just left it bare. So you have forests and orchards that are now just a field of stumps. And out of one stump in that field, you got a picture in your head of that? You've seen, you've seen property that's been clear cut, right? Like whole forests that are, being, that are being cleared for a major subdivision to go in. You know what a field of stumps looks like. Out of one stump in that field, he says, I'll bring forth a shoot. Life will spring forth from a single branch. You know, think about that because Austin said earlier you know God who created everything out of nothing imagine what he can do with a whole stump <laughs> a whole field of them but he just picked one of them just one just one will do to bring forth a shoot that'll bear fruit in due season it'll be years and years before that shoot will become a tree but its future is certain because God said it will bear fruit. I don't know if you've ever actually done this in, in, uh, in your backyard somewhere or whatever, where you tried to cut something off at the ground. Did you ever think you could get away with that? Did you try that trick? Uh, there, was, there was a bush of some sort at a house years ago, uh, of some sort is about as specific as I can get with anything related to horticulture or whatever. It's just a bush. But we tried that trick, or when I say we, I mean I, and, uh, you know, cut it down, and it's like a hundred of them grow in its place, <laughs> shoots everywhere. It's that sort of thing. It'll be a long time before 
the one shoot out of a stump becomes a tree, but it's certain that it will. It will bear fruit because God said so. And likewise, it was certain that the Messiah would come forth because God said so. But it would be another 700 years before the birth of Christ. Now they don't have any idea. They don't, they don't have any idea which promise they're getting. They got one that said, don't, don't fear, Sennacherib will not overtake you, I'll, I'll take care of him. That happened pretty immediately. A shoot will come forth for the stump 700 years later. But see, it's spoken by a trustworthy God and they know that. And he's with them in the waiting. He is there in the waiting. Not only can he be trusted to bring the promise to pass, but he can be trusted to abide in the waiting. But not only is it a stump that'll bear fruit, we're told it's the stump of Jesse here. Now there's only one Jesse in the Bible and it's the father of David. Before uh, David attained his royal status, he was a member of just this humble household of Jesse. And, and so what we're being told here is the, the, the kingdom of Judah has been so stripped bare. I mean, it's been cut down so low that there, there is no and will be no uh, memory, or I shouldn't say memory of, but no sort of glimmer of the grandeur or glory of a royal household of David. That is gone. We're cut down to the stump of this humble household of Jesse. But even so, God will bring forth, God will bring forth a shoot even from that stump. You might imagine how difficult that would have been to believe in the promise that David, that's, that's a descendant of David's would, would sit on his throne forever. And now it's all gone. How could that be? God said, I still got a stump left. Watch what I can do with that. So we see the root of the branch, but then secondly, the rule of the branch. And, and first of all, it says that his rule will be spirit led. If you look at verse two, it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit shall rest upon him. He shall always at every moment be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And of course, this is how Jesus essentially predicted or, or stated that uh, it would be when he announced the beginning of his ministry in Nazareth. You remember in the synagogue, he, uh, he stood up and read from Isaiah 61 and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then he ends up saying, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And because the spirit of the Lord rested upon him, he would rule with qualities that the kings of Israel and Judah never possessed. God-given qualities, wisdom and understanding, 
counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And from that, his rule shall be righteous, it says. So not only spirit-led, but his rule will be righteous. Verses three through five say, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Have you ever thought about the fact that a good and benevolent king is a rarity? I, I, I didn't do like a, an exhaustive study of history to see any percentages. But really a good king or a good queen is harder to come by than a bad one. And that was, that was unquestionably the experience that Israel had had. The northern kingdom, Israel, had 19 kings and you know how many of them were good? None. According to the Bible, not one of them was good. Every one of them did evil in the sight of the Lord. And in Judah, uh, according to my count, there were were 20 kings and eight of them were good. That's a much better percentage in Judah. But it stands to reason it would be that way, right? Right? Because if, if any one man has claim to all the wealth that a kingdom could contain and all the power that a kingdom could contain and no accountability to anybody, more often than not, um, he's going to use those to his own advantage rather than for the good of the people. That's the nature of man, not that that happens without exception, but again, it would stand to reason that that would be the case. And that's changed somewhat in modern times. Democracy has sort of put a check on uh, monarchies in, in many places where maybe they used to rule a little bit more absolutely. But even today, there are dictators who live in luxury while their people are impoverished and oppressed. A good king... It's hard to come by. And to one degree or another, that had been true in Israel. But what, what Isaiah 11 says is that in contrast, the Messiah would be a good king, a righteous king who would rule with righteousness, authority, compassion, and equity. And then finally, we see not only the root and the rule of the branch, but also the fruit of the branch. If we look at verse 6, we get a sort of a little snapshot of what's contained in verses six through nine. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. These are beasts at peace with each other when through all history they've been at odds with each other. You know, these are, uh, you, you do know that wolves don't hang out with lambs, right? I hope you caught the irony in this. Wolves don't hang out with lambs and leopards with goats and calves with lions and they certainly aren't led by little children. He will restore those kinds of conditions which haven't existed since Eden. That's how they were in the beginning. 
It's how all along he has promised to make them once again. And that's what's being depicted, that kind of peace that we knew in Eden, where predator and prey don't even exist as such. The lions eat straw instead of other animals. You know, I say parenthetically, it's kind of hard to imagine how uh, it would be a sign of being in paradise that anybody has to eat straw. But uh, apparently that's a better thing than eating other animals. But there's a measure of, of fulfillment in this found in uh, the love of Christ and the way that is borne out in the lives of people and the way reconciliation happens even on a human level. And, and what, he, what he has done in the church of, through the gospel, changing hearts and bringing uh, people together as one who used to be at odds with each other. So that now we have Jew and Greek brought together, slave and free, people from every nation and tongue and tribe all brought together. Once again, do you realize how unnatural that is? Right, that it is, that it's natural, men in, man in his own human nature will be at enmity with one another, will sort of group together with people who are like them or whatever and, and sort of always be in a state of conflict to one degree or another. What Christ has done in the church, in the hearts of people, runs at odds with that. But uh, the, it's along those same lines that, that uh, this gives us the basis for taking the gospel to the nations for seeking justice in the world, for pursuing racial reconciliation. And, you know, verse 10 kind of speaks to um, a degree of this in saying that the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. So there's an immediate fulfillment uh, or I shouldn't say immediate then, uh, to some degree a fulfillment of that partially in the life of the church, an ultimate fulfillment we would expect when Christ returns and ushers in a new creation when all, that is, uh, all that's broken will be made whole. So, beloved, may I, may I ask you this morning, what is it what is it that overcomes you with despair, maybe even today? What is it that washes hope away? Are you, re are you reminded, do you remember that the Jesus, the Messiah who was predicted who for these people was 700 years yet to come, that for us, he already came. <laughs> this is the good news for us. We live on the other side 
of the incarnation, the other side of the birth of Jesus. And we don't long for his coming in quite the same way. We hope and anticipate his second coming, he will come again. But he, he has already come. And not only was this uh, man of lowly birth, born of a virgin, raised in the home of a carpenter, born and laid in a manger, that man of lowly station who fulfilled those prophecies that said he would be that. But as Matt said, he came to die. And he died on a cross, a sacrificial death, to pay the penalty that you and I deserve to pay, but that only he was able to pay. And that work is finished. And might I ask you too, for those, particularly those who maybe don't know the Lord. Are you aware that um, there will be an end (laughs) and either at our death or when he returns, but that part of the end of the story is that there will be a judgment. And, And like, you know what, this is part of the story people don't really like to talk about so much anymore. In fact, if you're a visitor, it might be the, the, the person who invited you is kind of squirming right now because I'm, I've even, I'm even bringing it up. But it's part of the story. And, and for some, as with Israel, the northern kingdom, it will be final. I mean, at that moment, there, there, are, no, there are no attorneys making an argument. There, there's no jury. There's no, there's no spin put on the story. Um, the evidence will be incontrovertible. And, and Jesus, who says, won't judge by what his eyes see or ears hear, but with righteousness, God will just know and render judgment accordingly. That, that when we stand before him, we will either be found in our sin or in Christ. And there, there's, no, there's no middle ground there. But here's the good news. Here's the good news, beloved. If you are in your sin, you can be found in Christ. That invitation is open. The gospel um, is, is open to be received by people. That that Jesus, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross... Um, a death that you and I should have died, paid a penalty that you and I deserve to pay, and then rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven. That Jesus, through faith in him, offers us a reconciliation far better than any in the relationships we have on this earth, far better than that, but but reconciliation with God himself. And it is, it is through this promised Messiah, the root of Jesse, that when there was nothing left but stumps, God said, my plan will not be thwarted. His, his will will not be thwarted. Every prophecy he made about 
Um, Jesus and about his people will be brought to pass just as he said. And so it is in our day. And, and my prayer is and will be even now uh, for those who don't know him, that today would be the day. That he will just bring about a change in your heart, that the veil will be removed from your eyes, that what's been darkened to you will be enlightened and you'll just come to faith in Christ. But for others who know him and walk with him and, and are just walking in that uh, season of despair, that likewise you will just look to Jesus. He is the basis for our hope. And when we find ourselves in, in this season and it's, it happens for lots of people and beloved, if it's true of you today, you are not alone, I can promise you. But where we dress ourselves up a bit like these decorations in here, Right? And, we, and we, we're singing joy to the world and Merry Christmas, but there's nothing joyful or merry on the inside of us. All the lights are pointing outward and it's as if if they, could be, if they were turned the other direction and shined inside of us, if people could see the ache and the anguish that's really there, it would tell another, another story entirely. And even if that's you right now today, there is hope, there is hope to be found in a person and his name is Jesus. Would you turn to him and call upon him? Now let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the promises you've given and the ones that you have brought to pass. We thank you, Lord, that you are so faithful and trustworthy that we know the ones yet to be fulfilled will be. We know that we can trust you. We know that in our own moments of darkness and despair and even hopelessness, we can always find hope when we look to Jesus. Because if nothing else, we know that you are with us in the waiting And with you in a valley is a better place to be than alone on a mountaintop. So Lord, I just pray that uh, people all, in, all throughout this sanctuary, Lord, this morning would turn to you to look to you and call upon you for the hope that they need in this hour. I pray especially for those who don't know Jesus, who are, are, are without hope in the world because um, they are at a distance from you. Lord, would you bring them near by your grace, bring them to a place of faith in Jesus Christ and be glorified in the work you uh, bring forth in our hearts and in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we come now uh, to the table of the Lord's Supper where we partake um, of that very Messiah, that we join him in his death, that we participate in his death with him, that we commune with him, continue in the covenant that he has uh, begun and entered into with us. 
Uh, this table is open to all true believers in Jesus Christ. And so I often say, if you know with confidence that you are accepted in heaven, um, then you are accepted at the table of the Lord in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I would just encourage you to examine your heart to, uh, to be sure that that is true, but the table is open to all believers in Jesus Christ. We'll ask as they are distributed that you hold them uh, so that we can partake together. But you recall that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, uh, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. As I pray, I'll ask the, uh, us, the uh, elders to go ahead and, and uh, come forward and uh, we'll distribute the elements there. Well, Lord, we, we thank you for the privilege of partaking of the body and the blood of Christ that we join in his death and we set these common elements apart from their ordinary use for this holy purpose and we ask you to bless them and that by them we would experience Christ in a real if even mysterious way or would you make this transformational and not simply routine to us in Christ's name Amen Amen